And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Okay, now, how about that? Another fine introduction there from our friend Larry Babb. Welcome back to the Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. I'm your host, David Steele, and I am super excited to be bringing this special episode to you today. This is one from the American Hot Rod Foundation archives and features an interview that our former director, Henry Astor, did with the recently departed hot rod pioneer, our old pal, Harold Johansson. And we think this is a kind of a nice way to get back in the groove around here. Speaking of, did you did you think we weren't coming back? Did you think we'd forgotten all about you? If uh, If you're asking those questions, we won't hold it against you. Yeah, it's... It's been a long time, but but we're going to do our best to serve the listeners of the Rodcast a little bit better as uh, as we continue to go forward here. All I can say is that I've made it no secret that the American Hot Rod Foundation is, albeit mighty, it's a small machine. And our main focus is preserving history. And when there's more of that kind of work than anything else, then that is what takes our focus. And that's basically what's been going on around here along with some events that we've been a part of and it it really has taxed us a little bit but that being said not only are we long overdue but we have a plenty good enough reason to be returning in order to to pay tribute to our recently departed friend and we hope that this episode will have been worth the wait i think it i think it will be now some of you may know of Harold Johansson some of you may not but if you're at all connected to or you follow land speed racing, Harold's name will be a familiar one. He's one of the longest running competitors in the history of the sport. He's a multiple record holder as well as a 200 mile an hour club member since back in 1974, actually. And uh, so Harold, Harold is the real deal in this way, but he's also as you'll hear, a real deal in, in an even broader and more kind of all things hot rodding and racing kind of way. It cannot be overstated just how much Harold dedicated his life to this. He, he is as much an addict to this stuff as anyone that I'd ever met from any walk of life. And, and again, you know, I'll let him tell you about, about all this in his own words in this episode, but let me just say, I had the pleasure of meeting Harold for the first time in, I believe it was 2008, when my old pal Tommy Sparks, he took me out to meet him and see his world, and it was simply overwhelming. It was like seeing the exploded view of one man's, you know, decades-long obsession with racing and all things having to do with cars, and more specifically, Ford-based hot rods in race cars. 
he had just an absolutely killer collection of of stuff and and a killer collection of cars and it was it was all just how you want to see it 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 was all completely you know unaffected by the hobby and and the ebbs and flows of it these were items that Harold had collected here and there through the decades and he used them and he cared for them in a way that was his way and it had nothing to do with what fads or fashions might be going on outside the walls of his shop 1946 was 1984 and 2001 was 1960 I mean there was no time and there was no influence upon any of it other than his own curation I mean, he was his own man and he had built his own world and he liked it and he liked it. And he, he also liked sharing it with others in his very quiet way. For example, when Harold walked me past a, a perfectly kept uh, Riley powered 29 Roadster that was wearing older black lacquer paint and uh, casually stated in passing that this was his first roadster that he'd had since he was a kid. And it was Harold that had to stop himself and wait for me to gather myself up, you know, from hearing this amazing little tidbit that he just kind of, you know, again, kind of just said in passing because, you know, to him, this was just his little world and it probably didn't feel like he'd owned this machine for 62 years. It was just all familiar to him. It was what he walked out to every morning. But to me, it was an amazing encounter with a guy who was there in the day when racing roadsters on the streets of Southern California was a nightly pastime in in the immediate post-war years. And he had simply just never left that. It became his life. It continued to be his life until his recent passing at age 93. So not bad. Or as Harold might might have put it a pretty good run so sit back buckle up and enjoy this interview brought to you from the american hot rod foundation archives featuring our old pal the late great harold johansson so i guess what i'll just do why don't i just start at the beginning okay and ask you what was the first experience you ever had with the hot rod well, the first experience I ever had with a hot rod is street racing. I used to do a lot of street racing. We used to go out on Sepulveda Boulevard, out by the reservoir. We'd go to Bob's Drive-In or uh, Herbert's Drive-In, Hody's Drive-In. There were several drive-ins around where all the hot riders met. And then we'd uh, get talking and find out who had the fastest car. So we'd go out to Sepulveda by the reservoir and race, sometimes for money, sometimes just for the fun of it. And uh, that's how I first started racing out there, uh, my first uh, experience racing. And then it got to the point where the police were out there often. First time that we started racing out there, I was racing a fellow named Connie Wydell. He had a B-16 Cadillac. And uh, we both had Model T Roadsters with high-powered engines in them. And, uh, you know, but I had a four-cylinder, something like this. And... Uh, we went to race out there for $50, which is a lot of money in those days. And we were just getting ready to take off. 
and up pulls a highway patrol. And so we stopped, of course, and got out of the car, and they said, hey, we're not here to stop you guys. We, we heard you were coming out here to race. And she says, go ahead and do it. We're going to watch. That's how good they were back in those days. But then it got sort of out of hand. Everybody started racing out there, and uh, next thing you know, it, it had to control it. So they started arresting everybody. But So the cops were, like, you had the experience that the cops were actually encouraging you to race? Yeah, they weren't encouraging it, but they didn't stop us from it, because they wanted to see who had the fastest car, because we both had cars that were pretty pretty fast at the lakes, and, and they knew about them. And, Somehow they got tipped off that we were going to be there and race. And we had no idea they were going to show up. And they showed up right at the precise time we were going to take off. Tell me the story about how you got your first hot rod. Well, my first hot rod was this uh, Roadster right here, the 28 Roadster. And, and uh, I was coming home from high school, getting ready to hitchhike. I lived up in... Uh, Sherman Oaks, and uh, I hitchhiked up Van Nuys Boulevard, and I was going up to hitchhike a ride home, and I sp looked in this police garage, which I go by there every day when I get out of school, and uh, I saw this roadster sitting in there, and I always wanted a roadster, so I thought I'd go in and look at it, and uh, so I looked it over, and I thought, well, it's got under the hood, and I knew what a two-port Riley was even then, so I lifted the hood, and this fellow at the yelled at me, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just looking at the car. And he, he said, well, he said, uh, it uh, has $37 towing charges against it. And uh, it's been here 29 days. And uh, we can sell it legally now for the towing uh, charges on there. And I looked up at the, where he was standing. And it was kind of a little office where he was. He opened the window up the little office and above it, I noticed a sign that says, after 29 days, all vehicles will be sold for towing charges. So I said, well, how much do I have to pay? And he says, $37.75. So I asked him if, you know, if the engine run. He said, I don't know. He said, if you buy it, you can find out yourself. So I went hitchhiked a ride home and got a hold of my dad, and he brought me back down and lent me the $37, and we got it running. I don't know why it was in there to begin with, because the car ran. Maybe it was towed in for over-parking or something. I never did find out. He, he, he wouldn't mention it. So I gave him the $37, and, and I drove it home. And at that time, I didn't even have a driver's license. I just turned 16. What did you do with the uh, hot rod? How did you hop it up? How did you learn about engines? Or did you, did, was it with you and your friends? or? Yeah, I had some friends that were older that used to help me, and uh, I, at that time I didn't know very much about it. And uh, although when I was 14, I helped other guys on their cars. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine had a four-cylinder Chevy, and uh, I helped him work on it. And uh, he explained all the procedures, what to do. And, and uh, he told me I remember at one time he says. Boy, he says, I don't have much hope for you, Harold. You're not very mechanical. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. I always remember that because he was a couple of years older, but he was really a good mechanic. And I began to worry about that. And I thought, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. So I started uh, really working on cars then. And in fact, it's, and I'm getting ahead of myself there again, but I just bought another four-cylinder Chevy. I'm going to 
run at the drags, the vintage drags, you know, the antique drags. And I'm going to get back into that again, too, because I enjoy doing it, and it's, uh, it'd be fun. What, um, I mean, hot rodding, most people I talked to, their parents did not encourage hot rodding. My father and mother hated that. They always were telling me, don't do that. Of course, I'd never tell them that I was street racing, and uh, because they, my particularly my father didn't like it. And uh, one day in this roadster, he said, my car uh, is in the shop getting repaired. And he says, I got to get a ride to work. You want to take me to work? Well, he lent me the money for the car. So I said, why, sure, I'd be glad to. And uh, so I took off to his office. He had a real estate office at uh, Balboa and Ventura. And, you know, I drove like I always drive. And I just stepped out a little bit, and boy, he's put this, held onto his hat, and he says, "My God!" He said, "You drive terrible." And, and I said, "Yeah, well, I'll slow down, Dale. I'm sorry." And, and uh, I thought later, boy, my dad's 40 years old, and uh, what if I'm going to be that way when I get to be 40? I hope not. <laughs> Let's see. He was, uh, yeah, I was about 17 then. Yeah, he would be about 40. And I thought to myself, boy, that he's an old man there. He worries about. You know, I wasn't doing anything reckless. I just stepped out a little bit and it scared the daylights out of I always thought to this day, I thought, boy, I hope I don't get that way when I'm 40. <laughs> and, and you're racing now still. Yeah, and I'm still doing it. So. But he just was against cars and stuff. He didn't, uh, he didn't know anything about cars or cared anything about them, and he sure didn't uh, approve of any street racing, so I tried to be very quiet about whenever I went out and raced. And my mother wasn't quite so bad. She, she knew I was doing it, but she didn't say much. But if he just, he'd have known that I was street racing, he'd have probably uh, made me quit. Did you ever get um, locked up? Never did. All the years that I'd been street racing, and I ran off from the law several times on purpose, I've never gotten a ticket in my whole life. No, I take that back. Uh, when I first got this car, I, I didn't have a license. Yeah, I have to backtrack it. I didn't have a license. And uh, so I went down and I got one. I had it a week and I went, was going down to Van Nuys and Ventura and a buddy of mine was at another roadster and he pulled up alongside and he says, how's that two-port run? And I says, it runs pretty good. And he said, let's see. So we took off and next thing I know, saw the red lights in back of us. Well, I was ahead of him, so they pulled him over, and I thought, well, I'll get him. You know, they won't bother me because there's only one car. Well, the, the car stopped and got him, and I watched it in the rear mirror after I backed off the throttle, and the one policeman got out, rode him up, and then they chased me, and I just pulled over. Well, I lost my license for 60 days. It's the only ticket I ever had in my whole life, and from then on, uh, not that I didn't deserve plenty of them, but I never got one. But I did that time, and mostly because I was on the fire department. They don't write firemen up as a rule. And, uh, and, but street racing, uh, they would have, except one time I was out on Sepulveda. That's when I sort of quit racing there, and they had a big police uh, uh, you know, break uh, to, to uh, stop the racing. They had probably maybe 15... Uh, patrol cars out there and uh, so I just pulled over the side of the road and, and this one patrol car pulled up and he said well we're busting all you guys for racing 
and I had a fireman sticker on the back of that car, and he says, you a fireman? And he, I said, yes, of course. And he says, wait right here. And then he rode all the rest of the guys up and came back to me and said, now get out of here. He didn't write me up. But I should have gotten a ticket then because I was just as guilty as all the rest of them. But I didn't. What was, um, what was L.A. like back? I mean, we're, we're talking like 40... No, we're talking before the war, aren't we? No, we're talking in 46, 45 and 46, right in there. All during those years, the valley, of course, was built up and didn't, there weren't any freeways. And, and to go out to Sepulveda Race, you went out Sepulveda Boulevard all the way from the Van Nuys Boulevard, I mean Ventura Boulevard. You followed Sepulveda all the way out to the reservoir, and then we raced at the upper end. There was a standard station there. We'd all meet the standard station, and that's where I got pulled over in that standard station. And we'd race down to the other end, which would be about four miles. But we wouldn't go all the way down there. We'd get up, race a couple of miles, so. What, because um, America just came out of World War II, what was the general feeling amongst you and your friends? Of, was there like a feeling of hope? Was there a feeling, I'm just trying to get a picture of what it was like to live in America in 1945 as a kid. Well, you could do a lot of more things, of course, and the police were a lot more liberal until it got to the point where there's too many racing, but it, it, you know, they didn't bother you too much at that time. As I mentioned before, the highway patrolmen really enjoyed us racing out there. The other ones busted us because of public response towards it. They were, you know, they uh, apparently was slowing traffic down out there. We'd wait till the traffic cleared and then race down there. But, you know, a lot of times you'd catch up with a car that uh, uh, you waited to go by because you were going, you know, 110 miles an hour maybe. You'd catch up with them and scare the daylights out of them. So it got to be too much pressure on the police department. So they decided that they had to bust us all for doing it. And uh, so that's what they did. They finally stopped it. Well, I wouldn't uh, run anymore being on the fire department. If I got a ticket, uh, you know, too many tickets, they'd fire me, so. What were other kids doing while you were hot rodding? You mean what type of work were they in? Or? Yeah, what was going on? What, what else was there to do? It seemed like everyone in L.A. was hot rodding. Well, all the, myself and everybody that I ran around with, that's all we did, you know, that uh, on our days off uh, is... Uh, go to drive-ins every night, street race, and uh, that was the big thing back there for most of us. Was it a strictly a kind of a male-dominated uh, pastime or were there women involved? Was no, it... there wasn't any women involved. Once in a while you'd bring a girlfriend or a wife out there, but uh, they, they didn't get involved at all in those days. It was all strictly a male uh, type of thing. And how did you, um, where did you keep your car? Did you keep it in your parents' garage? Or? Yeah, I had a, a two, uh, four car garage there and I kept cars in there. At that time, I only had this car though. It's all I had. I drove this car to work and uh, raced it on the street and uh, it was everything. That's why I really like it today because it was all I had then. Then after about, uh, Oh, four or five years later, I could afford another car, and, and I kept this, left this one at home. And then I started uh, 
I, you know, had the fenders off of it and everything. I raced it up the lakes a couple of times. Then I started building a new car for the lakes. Can you tell me, um, like when, the first time you went to the lakes and what it was like and... and... Well, the first time I w took this to the lakes, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I've gone up the lakes just to watch before several times. And uh, a bunch of us got together and decided to run at the lakes. There was three or four cars that we street raced, decided to go up the lakes and see how fast they would go. So we went up in caravan, four of us, four different cars and two guys in each car. We ran up to El Mirage and uh, ran up there. And uh, that was the first experience at the lakes. We took the uh, defenders, of course, were all off the car, but we took the headlights and, the, and the, didn't have a top at the windshield and the license plate, stripped it all down and then raced it twice and then uh, put it back together again and drove home. All four cars did the same thing. Were you racing the Riley or? Yeah, that was the first one I raced, was this, was this Two-Port Riley Roadster. And did you get any success? Pardon? Any success? No, I turned 101, which the record was 123. You know, I didn't expect to go that fast, and it was held by a flathead V8. But for a four-cylinder, that ran pretty good. And, and the cars they went up with were all flathead V8s. And they didn't do any better than I did. In fact, one turned 100, 100 miles an hour, and another one turned 102. So we're all running about the same speed. But, but back in those days, you know, you, you just ran it. You didn't very seldom tune it up. If you want to run at the lakes, you got to tune it, put new plugs in there, and you know, really uh, update it every time you run it, which we didn't do, which why we didn't go that fast. So you, um, what happened after this car, and how did you afford to buy the other one? Did you have a job? Yeah, I went to work uh, for the post office, and uh, I could afford to uh, build another car then. So I <clears throat> got started uh, getting the parts to build a modified T Roadster, and I started building that because I realized that it'd be I'd go a lot faster with that <clears throat> than this car. And I, did, and I didn't want to race this car because uh, although I raced it on the street, if something happened, I'd have to walk to work. So I started building a new car that was going to race on the street and the lakes, which I did. It was a 27T Roadster. And uh, so I finally got it together, and I got a, a Riley V8 engine for it, which I thought was really great. There was only four sets of them ever made. And uh, so I finally got it running. And I took it up the lakes, and I joined the Outrider Club by then. And uh, they were all fast cars in the Outriders. So I was, went to the meeting, and I told them about I got this roadster with a Riley V8 in there, and I was going to get the record, you know, really. I was 17 by then. <laughs> and anyway, uh, I went up to the dry lakes, and, and I ran 106 miles an hour, which was faster than this went, but I figured it was going to go 100 and, probably 125 miles an hour. Well, it went 106. And then I messed around with it, changed the plugs, and I would turn 108. By then, the meet was over. So my fellow club members, they said, well, your car didn't go very good, did it? And I said, well, there's something wrong with the clocks, because I know that thing will run faster than that. So they said, well, we're going to line up eight cars on the side of the lake bed, and we're going to race across there, and, and you can join us. 
we do that after every lakes meet. And so I did, and I was dead last. I was eating all their dirt, and I was convinced that I, I had the slowest car in the club. So I commenced, I raced that several times after that, and then I decided to build up a flathead and sell the Riley V8. And the first run with a flathead, I went 123. So I was really going you know, in the right direction each time. But I, that Riley V8 I thought was really gonna be very successful, but it wasn't. Maybe that's why they only made four. Well, I don't know why they ever made any more, but uh, they only made four, four sets of them. What, um, what were you doing to the flathead? You know, were you stroking and boring, or were you, did you do anything to soup it up? No, well, yes and no. I didn't, the displacement uh, remained uh, the same, which was 274 cubic inches. I ran a relatively small motor because most guys were running uh, up to 296 size engines. And uh, so I built this the three and five sixteenths by stock stroke engine up, and that's when I went 123. And I started messing around with different combustion configurations on the head, modify the head. I ran several different type of heads and, uh, and, and put one more carburetor on. And I, I finally got it going 100 and, at Bonneville, went 144 miles an hour. So, so then I decided to bore and stroke it. And by then, I opened up an engine rebuilding place strictly for you know, high-performance engines on my days off in the fire department. So I was making pretty good money, so I decided to get a big bore and stroked engine and run that. So I did that. I went to Bonneville the following year after I turned 144, and I turned 149, but still, I, it should have gone better for a lot bigger engine. Who were you, um, were you, like, uh, getting information from like I know there's Edelbrock and Evans and Navarro. Were you buying speed equipment for any of these people? Or? Well, I'd buy the heads of manifolds, yeah, but I'd build the engines because I was selling them at that time. I was building engines, uh, you know, for extra money because at the uh, the time I went on the fire department, they weren't paying much money, so I had to do something to supplement my income uh, because I was still wanted to race and it even back then it was cost quite a bit of money and so I started building engines so I had you know I knew where to get everything uh, like uh, cams ground and, and I would experiment with I had a dyno there and I dynoed some of the engines and and I knew what what improved and what improved the horsepower on them so you actually had a dyno you owned a dyno back then well, I, I, the shop that I was working with had a dyno in there. I had a, a shop to the side of a Canon Engineering. And I don't want, yeah, he had a shop there and did machine work. And then I had, the, to the side, there was another building that, that I had that I, I rented out. And uh, that's where I built these engines at. And I built a, a couple of cars in there for myself. And who were these sort of hot um, speed merchants or speed shops and, and teams back in sort of 48, 50 that were really breaking, that were sort of um, pushing the envelope, as it were? 
Well, there weren't too many speed shops around. Most of what I dealt with was, uh, um, I can't think of his name now. He had a speed shop in Culver City. Um, he later had a speed shop right uh, down here in uh, Sierra Highway. Darn, I can't think of his name. Was it a fan? Was someone I'd have heard of? Yeah, I'm sure you have. But he's long since passed away. But I, oh, Carl Orr. Do you ever hear of Carl Orr? Yeah, I used to get a lot of stuff from him. He had a speed shop in Culver City, and he had used equipment there. That's all he sold was used. Well, some new stuff. I, I buy buy uh, different equipment from him. Here comes another plane. Yeah. Oh yeah, Carl and Vita Orr. Yeah, I, I'm sure you heard of them. I mean, she was she was a famous as as a racer and and also as a someone who kept the whole newsletter going throughout the war. Yeah, and then after the war, he he moved his speed shop from Culver City down here to Canyon Country and uh, sold parts there for another probably ten years <clears throat> before he retired. I mean, what what I want to get is a sort of picture, an understanding, or a feeling of you know, what it was like, what was going on. I mean, for instance, in the speed shops, did people come and hang out? Did you go and hang out there to learn about stuff that was going on? What was the scene that was going on? You no, know, when, when I first started racing, that uh, there was only two speed shops. There was uh, SoCal, and then there was Carl Orr's. And, but I never hung around there. I just went down there to buy parts. And in fact, I never hardly bought any parts from SoCal. I bought most of them from uh, Carl Orr, or just go directly to Edelbrock or, or Evans or wherever I happen to, or Navarro, and use their equipment, buy them direct. But uh, no, I didn't hang around speed shops much. I didn't, uh, I didn't think it was a good idea because it, you know, it bothered the business and everything. I, I guess some guys did that, but I didn't. I figured, you know, it, uh, I had enough experience by then that I didn't need to hang around listening to anybody else. I just kept experimenting. That's that's what you have to do in order to keep improving your knowledge on racing. Until today, I'm doing the same thing. But through actually your own experience is the way you do it. I mean, because you know, in the old days, and I'm sure it's the same way now. If you got a good speed ticket, you kept it to yourself. And it was more so then than today. And who were some of the great, uh, who were some of the people, the hot rudders, who were, who were you, you were competing with? Well, like, uh, well, one was, was, I thought was probably better than the rest of them, was Paul Schieffer. He had a T-Roadster, something like mine, and, and we were running in the same class, and, and he, he was very uh, competitive. And... Uh, I used to keep in touch with him quite a bit because he, he used to sell parts too, clutches and uh, flywheels and that type of thing. And what about the clubs? How did the clubs um, compete with each other? Did you compete as a club or as an individual when you raced? No, you, you uh, competed as club for club points, and which they still do today, but you were competing individually. You were just a club member because that's what you had to be to run up at the Dry Lakes. You had to be a member of, of, of an SCTA club, which is the same today. But there was a lot of club spirit. We, you know, we'd all uh, camp together and, and pit together, I should say. 
And uh, there's a lot more club spirit then than there is today, I think. I enjoyed it a lot more than I do today. It's like everything, it uh, <laughs> hasn't improved, like just about everything you can name. But it's got worse. It's gotten worse, yes. What, um, what was the scene up there at the lakes? I mean, were you hanging around with fires, drinking beer and singing songs, or were you working through the night on your cars? Or? Well, most of the time we'd work through the night on the cars. Always something to do. And, and uh, there, at that time there was two-day meets, and if you didn't go good on Saturday, you worked all night Saturday night to run Sunday. Now they just got one-day meets. You can't do that. But, uh, yeah, you used to, you, you didn't stand around and drink beer and stuff because you had too much, many things to do. At least that's, some of them did, I guess, but I didn't. I had too many things to do, and I wanted to be rested up to race. That's what I went up there for. I could party other days at home or, or any place else. But I, I didn't believe in partying up at the lakes. Well, one experience I had is, uh, it was probably about 19... Uh, 1952, I think it was. Went up to the Bonneville. I took my roadster up there, and uh, I stayed at the Army barracks at that time. There weren't enough hotels in town, so we stayed at the Army barracks. And a friend of mine that retired from the county fire department was the chief in charge of the barracks there. So he said, "You can stay in the barracks with, with the firemen," which I thought was a great idea. And so I unloaded the car, and I was going to fire it up, and I push started it down between the Army barracks, and I forgot to uh, uh, push it backwards to get the fuel out of the engine, well, it hydraulic a, a rod, and that was the first day of, of, of the start of Bonneville. So I didn't know what to do. I thought, well, I'm going to go home. Might as well go home. I don't have any spare parts. Well, uh, some of the guys said, well, why don't you call home and see if you can get another rod and have it shipped up and we'll help you put the engine back together. And I said, oh, that's a lot of work. It'd probably be a couple of days before I can get, get another rod back here. But I decided to do that, so I called home. And uh, at that time I was married. My wife sent a, uh, another rod up in, in the uh, in UPS, I guess it was at that time. And we put the engine back together and fired up and set a record with that thing. And if it wasn't for all the help I had, I wouldn't even have attempted to do that. But we worked all night in the barracks there and, and uh, had all the engine all apart and we put it all together since I got the rod. And we ran out there and ran real good the next day. Well, it adds spice to the whole thing. I mean, many people did, you know, everyone... Because I've had more experience and more different experiences street racing that I ever did at the lakes. I mean, you know, in Bonneville, all you do is go on a straight line there and try to make the car go as fast as you can and set a new record. But out in the street, it's a real challenge <laughs> to keep from getting it uh, into trouble. And it's a lot of fun. I guess it's the, uh, the fun of, the danger of it probably was fun back then. That's why we all did that. You must have some good some juicy stories that would... Well, one night, the story I think is the most interesting to me, was one night we were racing out there in Sepulveda, and we always went out three or four at a time in the club members. So coming back, or before we started back, I'd burn out the, uh, 
I forgot to disconnect the alternator on the engine and we burned out the alternator. Well, the battery started getting real low. So we got back uh, down Sepulveda and back to Ventura Boulevard and, and I only lived at Van Nuys, which was a mile away. And uh, the, the battery started getting real low, so I turned the lights off. Well, I passed the patrol car with the lights off. So they, they were going the opposite direction, so they made a U-turn. Of course, I knew what they were after, and I thought, well, I can either pull over or make a run for it. So I made a run for it, and we all, all four roadsters took off at the same time, and, and they followed us, and I turned down Kester Avenue, and there was another patrol car sitting in the gas station there, and he took off after us. And here I was going down Kester Boulevard with no lights, trying to outrun the police, and uh, I knew the area real well, so I was safe there. And I knew across the L.A. River, there was a, a dirt road the other side, Valley Heart Road. And I made a right-hand turn and, and made so much dust, they didn't know which way, then I made a left-hand turn again. And I pulled into, to, into a yard there and waited for them to go by. And then when the dust cleared, I realized I was sitting right alongside a highway patrol car who lived there. <laughs> but he didn't... He apparently wasn't, didn't wake up because it was only a matter of a minute or two when they went on by. Then I pulled out and went the other way, and then I, I drove the car home from there, which was about a mile away. And all, all of us got away by doing the same thing. But they, they were after all, all four cars, but they never caught a one of them. That's funny, so you skidded, skidded in and there was the right by highway patrol. Right by highway patrol cars parked right next to him. I thought, boy, I'm caught for sure. But the lights went on in the house and he didn't know what was going on. He was apparently in bed. It was fairly late at night. So I put the car in reverse and took off out of there. And these were LA City policemen that were after me. They had nothing to do with the highway patrol because it was in city streets. And that was, uh, that was one experience I had. And another experience, uh, I was coming home one night, or one afternoon, there was a couple of guys following also, and we went by the police and, and just deliberately put them in second gear and took off and got them to chase us. And they never did catch us. The only time I was caught, as I told you that time in Sepulveda, but all the times that I ran from the police, I never caught because in those days, the, these cars were a lot faster than the police. Now they're not. I mean, take a pretty good car to outrun a police car now. That car wouldn't do it. But then it was king because they could outrun all the police cars. Well, also now you'd probably get shot. Pardon? You'd get shot. If you oh, got yeah, you'd get shot now, too. They wouldn't do that back in those days. Was it a kind of... Um, where you chased... Not in jest so much, but how, how seriously did the police really take, you know, these, these chases? I mean, were they angry or was it sort of, were they pretty liberal, the police? No, they would get angry when you'd run off from them. They didn't like that. You know, they, they, I, I knew some of those policemen and, and, of course, they didn't know, you know, I didn't run off from any that I knew, fortunately, or they would have been able to catch me or knew where I lived. But... Uh, no, I talked to some of them. They, they didn't like the idea of, of, of that going on because there was a lot of street racing at that time. We raced on Sepulveda, and then we'd go out to 101 Highway out in, in um, um, uh, Calabasas area. We'd race there, 
and we raced uh, over on Hollingsworth Drive by, uh, uh, oh, what's the name of that? Uh, oh, that big cemetery over there. There was a big stretch uh, on Hollingsworth Drive, and uh, you could, we raced out there. There were several different places we raced. So it sounds like you actually more enjoyed more street racing than lakes racing. Well, uh, I did, yeah. I enjoyed it because I did it uh, four or five nights a week for, for years there. In the lakes, there was only six lakes be a year, and you could only, and of course, then it was two days, so it wasn't so bad, but we'd race during the week and uh, then race at the lakes on, on once a month. That uh, sounds like I did a lot of racing, and I did. I really enjoyed it. What was the, there's a sort of image of the juvenile delinquent bad boy, is that, what kind of image did you have in the press, or, or it's your parents' generation? Well, I, I think that back then, see, it wasn't quite so dangerous, it wasn't the traffic and everything, now you're going to, and even then you could kill some innocent person, which uh, uh, I don't really think it's a good idea now, but uh, being older for one thing, and, and more traffic now for another thing, of course, but uh, there ought to be more organized racing. And uh, they still street race today, I understand. I don't do it, but I know they do it still. When was the last time you chose someone off the... Oh, it's been a long time now. A year? Oh, but five or six years now since I've done any of that. Get involved in any of that. I go to Bob's driving every... Uh, Friday night, and uh, that, but I, I don't see any racing around there at all. But I know they do it. I hear them talking over there that they do street race different places. But uh, I don't go to any of that. You still go to Bob's Drive-In? Yeah, every Friday night. Is you ought to come over there some Friday night. There's a lot of racers go in there, just like the old days, the one on Toluca Lake. And how has it changed? Well, instead of being cars like this, they're later cars now. There's some cars like this there. That's why I still go, but most of them are 57 Chevys and, and that type of thing. That's amazing. It's still there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot younger crowd, but there's still some of the older guys come there. And what... Um, so do you... What, do you just hang out and talk about cars? Is that yeah, that's right. We just go over there and talk about cars like we always did. But we used to go to talk about cars, then we'd go out and race afterwards. Now we just talk about it. It's still fun to do, you know. I still enjoy doing it. Are you tempted? You must be tempted, you know, to see someone else with a 32 or something just to, you know, do a quick drag race down the... <laughs> well, I... I sort of quit that until, until you know, that when they started racing for money, and then, then it made it a little different deal, because I'd go out there and, and uh, my car was always a little bit faster, and I'd always make some money on the deal, which was, and it was fun doing it. But I, I don't think I would do it today, boy. If, if you get, you know, you go to jail now if you get caught. What, um... Can you tell me, the first time you went to Bonneville, what was your impression of Bonneville? Well, I really enjoyed going, but it was so darn far there and expensive. And still, of course, the same today, but I didn't figure it'd last all this time because, you know, I didn't think the interest would last 50 years or so, which it did. 
In fact, it's probably more entries this last year than ever before. But uh, I was really impressed because, you know, he had uh, five or six miles to run on where the lakes only had a mile. And you could really gear the car up and, and turn a lot faster speed, although it was a lot higher altitude, which hurt you there, too. But I was really impressed with it. I was hoping that it would continue on. I, but So I started going on every year after that until 58. That's when I quit, or 59. When was the first time you went to Bonneville? 1950. Can you remember who was up there and... and what, what car did you bring up and did you... No, I remember Bill Burke was the starter at that time. In fact, there was a picture in Hot Rod Magazine with my car on it in, at the starting line. And he, he was talking to me and waved the car on then finally. And Zach Biller ran then and uh, I could go on and on about the cars that were up there. When did you... How did you get into the 200 mile an hour club? Can you tell me about that and what? Well, I, I built this Chevy engine. Uh, uh, I tried doing it with uh, uh, Arden before I couldn't make, quite make 200 on it, so I finally built a Chevy engine, put it in there. This was in 1974 by then. I built up a, a, a Chevy engine, a C-Class engine. And I ran at Bonneville in the in the same roadster I run today, 29 Roadster. And um, first year I took it up there was six was uh, 73, and uh, I didn't quite break the record. I, in fact, I broke the engine. Then 74 I ran a ran 208 uh, average. I turned uh, 211 on the down run, but on the return run. Uh, I had wheel discs uh, on the inside of the wheels, on 18-inch wheels, and uh, the wind caught it and concaved the wheel disc in and it took me clear out of the course. And I thought, boy, I should really abort this run, but I was going down 211 and I knew I'd gone that fast on the first run. So I got back of the course and got on and came back 198, but I still averaged 208. That was the most wildest ride I ever had because the car went clear out of the course by then. I backed off the throttle completely and then got back into it again. The fastest of a four-cylinder ever went in a Roadster, 164 miles an hour. I'm building another Roadster now to run this next year. I want to be the first to go 200 in a Roadster with a four-cylinder. That's my big goal today. And I got the car and the engine to do it. And just, I got to finish it up. When's the, when's the race? When's the meet? August. But I'm going to run it at the Dry Lakes maybe in May or June to, you know, to check it out for Bonneville. But I want to be the first guy in the uh, first roadster to go over 200 with a four-cylinder. Right now it's 164 is the fastest anybody ever went, which I hold a record in, but I want to go 200 and I think I'll do it. And are you going to tell me how you think, how you're going to do it? What you're doing to the engine that's... that's uh... Well, I build a, uh, a four-valve head for, for the engine, a Model B block, and I've had, I built it four years ago. I built it all from uh, scratch from billet stock, 
but I've had trouble getting it uh, tuned in. Uh, it, uh, the fuel mixture had been right, and I've had a time with that that I've had a lot of valve train problem, but I got that all ironed out now, and so it, it, I'm sure it'll run 200 in a Roadster. Just have to do it. And I'm building this super streamlined Roadster to do it in. I've been working every day on that and uh, try to get ready. I have one guy helping me a couple of days a week on it, but that's my big goal right now to do that. How can, can you just describe the atmosphere and the camaraderie or even the nightlife? And I've heard some pretty wild stories actually about, um, you know, the other side of the state line, the Nevada side of the window. <laughs> yes, I was very involved in that too. That, that was a lot of partying going on. And it didn't do it so much today, but every every night we'd be up at uh, Wells, Nevada, to the to the houses of ill repute. <laughs> we'd go up there and uh, and drink, and then come back and race the next day, which is really kind of dumb. But we did it. All of us did that for years. And um, I'm just trying to get the scene. That was most of it right there. I didn't even want to bring that part up. Well, I'm sure you've heard, heard that by now. Well, I haven't heard your version of it. Well, that, uh, that to me was the best vacation you could have. You could race all day and have fun at night, too, if your body could handle it all. <laughs> but back then, there was a lot of, of going on like that. And you got to know all the guys, and the, the same guys would be racing and be up there. Now it's different. It's not like it used to be. It's, uh, you know, guys now, they race a couple of years, and they maybe set a record, and then they, they go on their way and do something else. It's just sort of a passing fancy with a lot of guys. They really, a lot of them just want to get in the two club, and, you know, they're not regular uh, typical racer, as far as I'm concerned. They're just in there for the sport of it. None of those go to Nevada that I've ever seen. It's completely different now than the old crowd running. When you to me, that's the most fun I ever had in my whole life is at Bonneville. That was very impressive going there and racing. Because you could race a whole week, you know, and you had a nice long course not like the lakes where it's dirty and dusty and, and you had a short course and you had to really get the car accelerating hard to, to turn to good speed. And I still enjoyed it, but Bonneville was sort of like the Indianapolis of, of, uh, of, uh, of Indy-type racing. That's what I think about it. How was, how was the whole place changed, you know, is it, is it being built up and is it now a... Well, there's a lot of hotels and stuff, and, but there's more guys racing up there now and, and it's hard to get reservations. In fact, I just called the other day to, to get reservations there, but before there was only the state line and you could get uh, a room there, so we stayed in the army barracks. Or, well, I, I never did camp out, but some of the guys did, but mostly it stayed either in a hotel or in the army barracks. But you can't stay in the army barracks anymore because they closed the base up. That's been some years back. So all the hotels, because I've got to go out there in August to interview some people, are they all booked up already? Oh yeah, they're all booked up already. Because you know, there's over 300 entries 
and although there's must be seven or eight hotels there, they're all full because you have other people coming in there gambling and things, so uh, there's just not enough uh, accommodations to, for them all. And um, what, so you went, to, you went to Bonneville from like 50 to 58, and why did you stop going to Bonneville? Well, my, my wife got pregnant and had a child, and, and uh, she, put, she made me stop for a while until the daughter got big enough to be on, you know, so she wasn't a baby anymore. So I quit between 58 and uh, I started again in 65, running again. And, and, and did you, um, were you a fireman, was that your full-time job? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my full-time job working with the fire department. And you went into, I mean, because I know you broke a lot of records. Can you just talk about some of the other records you broke in the early days? And with what engines and... Well, at one time, I held all the four-cylinder roadster records and the lakester records and the streamliner records. I held all the records in the four-cylinders for a while, which, but I finally lost most of them. That, uh, that's probably the most spectacular thing I did with a four-cylinder and then I ran uh, the Chevy when I got the two club. I ran D and C gas roadster record. And uh, I held a record at the Dry Lakes for the D gas roadster for 20 years before anybody could break it. And then uh, I held a C gas roadster record at Bonneville for almost 10 years before somebody could break it. Then I went back to racing four cylinder cars. And then I got all the records because there was not much competition. Did you have a partner that worked with you, or did you did you design the car and the engine? Or? No, I had different partners over the years. Guys uh, working on the fire department. One, Carol Thompson. I don't know. He would be a good guy to interview, but I don't know whatever happened to him. But uh, he used to. We used to work together on the fire department and race too. And over the period of years, I've had different guys uh, helping me because racing you got to have at least you know it, it's uh, at least a two two-man uh, operation, one to push the car and the other to drive it. So you can't do it by yourself, so you always have a partner to, to work with you, which I have today, different. But they, they change over the years, guys get burned out and they want to do something else, and I understand that. I keep going and get different partners. <laughs> Nothing's gonna stop you. Did you ever feel that it was too dangerous to race? No, I never did get that feeling, I, I never, uh, in fact, I felt more at ease racing at the lakes than I did out in the street because you never knew when some car was going to pull out in front of you. Uh, I was a little apprehensive about street racing, but the lakes, I've never been uh, considered too dangerous, although I've seen a lot of guys get killed up there. But usually it's, uh, you know, it's a problem with a car as a rule. And I always tried to make the car, make sure it was safe and uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't get hurt in it. Of course, it's <clears throat> anything's possible, but of course, racing out, or, I mean, driving out on the freeway is probably more dangerous today than racing at the lakes in Bonneville because there's a lot of nutty drivers out there, and, and at least at Bonneville, you don't contend with that. So I, I've always felt safe running at both places. Did you um, ever get into belly tanks and that kind of thing? I mean, you know, all these guys were. After the war, we're converting 
belly tanks and linksters and you know, were you did you build any of those? No, I built a, a, a linkster, but not a belly tank. I still have the one there that I run, but. Uh, a lot of guys were building belly tanks, and, and funny, it's getting back to that again. I know a lot of guys are building those again now. In fact, the guy that's helping me on my roadster is building one, and another fellow that's helping me is building one. It sort of runs in, in uh, you know, different uh, phases, and uh, for years nobody ran a belly tank. Now it's coming back again, but back you know, in the early 50s and late 40s, there was a lot of, most of them were belly tanks then. But they all sort of disappeared. Now they're coming back again, some of them. I, I don't know that, uh, to me, they weren't that streamlined. That's why I never built one. But a lot of guys disagreed with that. And, and uh, for that reason, I didn't build one, because they were designed to lift. Why do you think hot rodding is, has always been, it seems like it's always been like a working man's pursuit. There aren't a lot of kind of wealth, you know, people who came from wealthy families getting into hot rodding. It's mainly, wasn't it? Well, there was quite a few guys, not quite a few, but I know some guys that were friends of mine that were quite wealthy, but they usually had all the work done themselves. They didn't do the work themselves. They had it done. But most of those guys were, you know, came from rich parents. But they never seemed to be too mechanical, any of them. But there was a, a few of them do, uh, hot riding with a lot of money. Do you think it's all changed now, like hot riding today? What, what are young kids doing? Is it the same, same thing? Well, it's more of a passing fancy now than it is like it used to be. The same guys would race all the time and uh, year after year. And, and now it just seemed like few guys race and they quit and a few more guys do. I go to Bonneville now and I don't know half the guys up there or even probably a, maybe a third of them. It, where before I knew everybody, you know, because we were all we were a lot more uh, a lot more friendlier guys than I think. I liked it much better then. Is it still, is there competition there now, more competition there now or? Well, I would say no, not as much as back in the old days. But the only thing bad back in the old days is, is they used to get some sponsors, and it was hard to beat those guys. I, I never did have much in the way of a sponsor. I, I was my own sponsor. I had the re engine rebuilding shop and the fire department for salary, so, but I never had any outside help, so to speak. But some of those guys did, and it uh, makes a big difference when you get somebody putting money out, uh, some big company. Uh, they don't do that much anymore now, but they used to. There was a lot of sponsorships going on, and the guys that were really uh, going fast. What, um, did you just always realize that you, I mean, did you, have you done for all of your life the fire department and engines? The what? What have you, all of your life, I mean, since 1946 or 47, has that been your life? your work, fire departments and engines. That's all I ever did, yeah. I never had another job. Well, in the, I worked on the post office for one year before I went in the fire department. But basically, the fire department and the engine rebuilding is about all I've ever done. And have you ever thought you wanted to do anything else, or that's, you just knew that was it? I never had any desire to do anything else, still today. 
I still work part-time for the fire department today even. I'm still doing basically the same thing today as I was doing back in the 40s. Well, I didn't go on the fire department until 1949, 50. So. What, um, what are your best memories, do you think, over the years of hot running? Well, the be best part of it? Well, it still goes back to the most fun was the, was the street racing. Because we'd go every, every night, almost every night of the week to, to different drive-ins and go street racing afterwards. And Bonneville and the lakes was fun, but you didn't do enough of it, as far as I was concerned. That, that wasn't enough. Because at that time, Bonneville was only one time a year. And uh, it really didn't get very much racing then. And some guys built cars just to run Bonneville. Well, I'd never do that. I want a car I can use all the time, whether it's street racing or the lakes or Bonneville and all three of them. That's the way I felt about it. What about um, drag racing? Uh, I didn't do too very much drag racing because it's over so fast and tears up parts as far as I was concerned. I used to run at Saugus uh, Drag Race because <clears throat> once a month you'd give out a war bond. Uh, so, uh, for the stock class, I had a 40 Ford coupe, and uh, so I, I had an old Bonneville engine that, that was a 3 8 by 3 8 3 8 bore and 3 8 stroke. Well, I decided to run that there in the stock class, and so I took and put stock heads and manifold on it, but it still had the cam and the ports and relief and everything in it. So I'd run out there for the war bond, and I uh, just take off easy and never would get on it because if, if I ever got on it too hard, they'd know it wasn't a stock engine. So I'd just let the other guy get ahead of me. And then just at the finish line, I would go by him. Just make it a spectacular shot there. Well, I did that for about a year. Drag racing wasn't, you didn't really get into drag racing. No, the only reason I got into it was because they gave that war bond out. And I figured that was an easy, thing to do because I had my knowledge of engines. I figured I could beat anybody, uh, you know, in the stock class. But of course, I was cheating, naturally, but I figured that'd be an easy way to do it. We didn't have to really turn the engine on too hard, which I did. And then uh, I, I did that for over a year. Every, once a month, I'd go out and get that war bond. And then some guy did the same thing as I did. He apparently uh, had the bottom end bored out and, and stroked and everything. And uh, so I was just sitting there at the starting line looking around like I always do. And he took off and the next thing I know, he was 10 car lengths ahead of me. So boy, I floored it then. And of course it went, you know, instead of going 80 miles an hour, it went over a hundred. And uh, Lou Bainey, who was the uh, promoting the drag race, he says, Harold, don't bring that damn car back here again, will you? It's obvious what you did there. And he said to the other guy, you too, you guys are both cheaters. I really felt kind of bad about that, so I didn't go back after that. But did you, um, was there a lot of, not cheating, well, yeah, cheating, I mean, people- Well, it is, it wasn't a stock engine, but it was a stock appearing engine, at least. Just had stock heads and, and a manifold, a single 97 carburetor, but the bottom end, instead of being 239 inches was, was uh, 296 inches. 
made a big difference. I jetted the carburetor to, you know, when you got on it to get a lot more fuel. And uh, it, it went good. Did you ever use nitro or? Yeah, I did at Bonneville in the lake several times. I still do. Run, run in the fuel classes, I run nitro up to 50%. I've never tried running nitrous yet, but I may try that. But I just run nitro. It, nitrous gas? Yeah, nitrous oxide is a gas. I've never, never ran that. I just ran nitromethane. And what, um, so I was asking what your best memories are over the year. Bonneville is my best memories. I've had more fun at Bonneville and I still do than, than any other type of uh, racing. To me, that's, uh, that's the Indianapolis of hot rodding, and is today. What did you do after the, did you race anywhere else? I mean, did you get into Indianapolis? Did you get into NASCAR? Did you get into building engines? For no, I never did. I went to Indy several times just as a spectator and to help out different guys that I've known racing there, but I've never got involved in any of that racing at all. I always wanted to, but you know, that uh, being part of that was expensive even back then. So all I'd do is, is be on a pit crew there at Indy. I never did any NASCAR racing at all. What, um, if people to read or about this period, you know, from 1940 to 1955, in a hundred years' time, how would you want them to see it? What, you, what key events or aspects of hot, early hot rodding do you think they need to know? What's, what was the really important? Well, back then, the most important thing, I think, was that you had to make all your own parts. You know, every, everything I made, almost everything that I did, still do today, because I believe in doing that. To, to me, going down buying a bunch of parts and putting it together. You're just an engine assembler. You're not an engine builder. And it's, to me, that's no fun. Somebody else has done all the engineering and work, and uh, so you really haven't accomplished too much. Yeah, but it's more and more like that now. And in some respect, it's good. It isn't nearly as much work, but it's not nearly as rewarding either, as far as I'm concerned. That's just my personal opinion about it. You can buy a kit car and a kit engine and hope put it all together or you maybe even buy it all together. And that's what's going on today. Nobody builds their own cars hardly today. And uh, back then everybody did. You know, you go down and buy a set of heads maybe and manifold stuff because it would be hard to make something like that, but everything else you make. Was it, um, did your wife, was she against racing? Yeah, she didn't like it too well. At first, she used to go to the lakes with me, and uh, and everything was fine till, till she got pregnant. And she decided that that wasn't a good thing for me to race anymore. So, stopped for a while for that reason. And I went back after it again because I couldn't handle it. I had to go back racing again. So I ended up in divorce. Because of racing? Yeah, racing caused the divorce. Exactly what it did. I told her I wasn't going to quit racing. And that was it. I wasn't happy without doing it. So we went our own ways. And I shouldn't laugh, but 
you know, but you know, to have a love of racing over. Well, I've been racing up, you know, for probably for 15 years before then, so I wasn't about to give it up, which I did though for a while, but I couldn't handle it very long. I had to go back, back doing it again. In that dry spell of not racing, what were you doing? How did, how did you cope with that? Well, I was building all this stuff around this property here. I was busy building buildings and improving the property. There was nothing here when I bought the property. Just 30 acres of bare land. I, I uh, worked on improving the property mostly. But then when I got that more or less finished up, I wanted to go back racing again. She says, no, you're not. We'll get a divorce, and I said, "Okay, that's the way it is." So, so I went back racing again. But <laughs> I don't know how to put this. Your greatest love is racing. To get divorced over racing is quite, you know. What would you do without racing? Would do what? What yeah. would you do without racing? You know that worries me. That exactly worries me because I can't do this forever. And I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't do it anymore. It's going to, it, it bothers me now that I'm getting older. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I just can't sit around and do nothing. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, it's, going to, it's a serious problem that I'm going to be confronted with eventually, sooner or later. But I'm still, you know, as healthy as I always was. I haven't had any medical problems, so... I continue to do it just like I was 20 when I, or before that, 14 when I really started. That's amazing. It's even amazing to myself that I've got the interest I have after all these years. You'd think I would be like most people. All my friends are doing something else now. They don't, they're not into racing at all. I'm the only one that I know about of the original bunch that are still racing. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but. It's good for me because I don't know what I'd do if I, if I didn't race anymore. Well, I got the vintage cars, you know, I'd still, as long as I could drive, I could still drive my cars here and there, go to different car shows and things, go down to Bob's or something like that. I take one of the cars down there. But that worries me in the day when I can't drive anymore is what, what really worries me. And that day is coming. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, I hope Good I've time. been helpful to yeah, you. Yeah, it was great. It doesn't sound like very much for all experience I've had, I admit that. Well, you know, it's really difficult putting you on the spot and sitting you down and telling your life story in an hour and a half. Yeah. You know? Well, I tried to hit, hit all the highlights, but I'm sure there's plenty of things I probably missed. Well, you've won so many records and most spectacular thing, I think, is I probably, well, you already know that, and that I've ran more at the lakes in Bonneville and set more records than anybody else has, so that's, to me, is, uh, but of course I should have, because I've been doing it more than anybody else. talking the rodcast brought to you by your friends at the american hot rod foundation just extra special thanks to the late great harold johansson what a guy just what a great story and as we said at the top of this the real deal i mean just the real deal 
and just what a wonderful guy, you know, sat down with us uh, those many years ago. We think that interview is about 15 years old. You know, that takes a lot of time. We, we took over his, well, I shouldn't say we, I wasn't there. Uh, that was conducted by Henry Astor, and you would have heard him off camera uh, asking the questions. But he and his film crew uh, went set up there. And, you know, that probably took the better part of a day of Harold's time to clear the space in the shop, let the, the lighting be set up and the audio be set up and the cameras be set up and, and to stop his work that he would have been doing that day, working on a race motor or a chassis or or whatever Harold would have been doing that day, he paused, took some time to sit down with us. So thank you again, Harold, so much for that. Special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistants from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And as always, all broadcast music is written and performed by me. Uh, special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. Uh, the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Stephen Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So if you'd like to learn more, please hop over to our website, www.ahrf.com. Support us there by checking out our merchandise. You can make a donation. You can also follow us across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images pulled from the Foundation archives, as well as information on future episodes of the Rodcast. So, uh, once again, huge thanks to the great Harold Johansson for his generosity, for being such a great friend to the American Hot Rod Foundation, and for everything he contributed to our great American pastime throughout his entire life. Yeah, so we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We certainly have. And we hope you'll join us next time, right here, for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.